Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Taylor, and I'll be your host. And first and foremost, I would just like to thank everybody for the support that we've had and plug our social media. Uh, We are at Beyond the Breakers podcast on Instagram. I'm trying to post pretty frequently on there and um, interact. Definitely enjoy doing that. We also have an email, beyondthebreakerspod at gmail.com. If you'd like to reach out with requests or feedback or just, you know, any thoughts on the show, we've already had a few people do that. And we're looking forward to working on some of those projects and doing some listener requests. It's pretty exciting. Finally, I'd also like to say thank you to everyone that's taken the time to rate and review the show on iTunes. Uh, We really love hearing from you guys and uh, really excited to keep working on that. And it's a great motivator to uh, keep going and continue to produce a product that people enjoy. Uh, With that being said, I would like to go ahead and introduce my co-host, who's always joining me on the show, Tanner. Tanner, how are you doing? I'm doing really good. I'm excited to do another another one of these shows. I assume that the story we're going to talk about today will be happy and uplifting. Uh, As all shipwrecks are. (laughs) What what else you got going on? Oh, not too much, you know. Since we always talk about the weather, we should talk about it now. It's starting to get warm up here. It's like not even winter anymore. Doesn't feel like February at all. Yeah, it's like 50 degrees here in Ohio, so it's wonderful. It's great. The snow's all melting. Everything is uh, turning into spring. So I know as we were talking a little bit before the show, you actually had an article, a current event, if you will, that you wanted to uh, discuss that's related to the show in a little little way. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, in fact, I do. The other day, this was I think this was three days ago, the Port of Milwaukee, uh, its tugboat, the Harbor Seagull, sank. <laughs> It, it sank. It's funny because all the articles say an unexpected mishap. I don't think there's any such thing as an expected mishap. Uh, or, a, or a ship sinking at, it, when it's tied it, up at the dock. <laughs> it wouldn't be a mishap if it was expected. But yeah, the uh, work boat, the tugboat, the Harbor Seagull, it's a uh, icebreaker slash tugboat that works in the Milwaukee uh, port. It sank in the Kinnick River the other day, the KK. And they're still not totally sure why. They're, I think they're conducting that. I don't know if it's technically an investigation or what, but they're still looking into what happened. The other nights, I think Monday, uh, Monday nights or early, early Monday morning, maybe, people notice, hey, this, uh, this thing is sinking. It apparently sank very rapidly, and they still don't quite know why it sank. It was still tied up uh, at the dock, so that prevented mm-hmm. it from rolling kind of deeper into the river. I think it was only in like 15 or 20 feet of water. Um, and they actually just raised it the other day. They used a crane and they dragged it out of the river. Interesting. Uh, reading an article here from uh, Channel 12 in Milwaukee. A salvage expert said the tug is an extremely strong, sturdy boat, which actually made recovering it easier. A replacement would cost the city upwards of $1 million. So the salvage and, re- and repairs are estimated at about 250000 So I'm guessing they're just going to repair this thing. Yeah, it was really interesting um, reading about that. I think they said it's like 60 years old or something. It's just interesting that it was really built to last, and it's worthwhile to raise that thing and uh, refurbish. Mm-hmm. Which kind of sad that we, you know, Milwaukee won't be getting a flashy new tugboat. Uh, <laughs> but that's good. They're able to, to save it. Nice. Yeah, it's uh, you know, something we'll try to do a little bit more of is to try to pull a current event or something going on, uh, just a little bit of news kind of before we roll into the story portion of this. 
But uh, with that being said, let's uh, let's get going on today's story. Are you ready to do that? You ready to go visit Australia? Yeah, let's go down under. All right. Yeah, this is definitely stepping out of our comfort zone a little bit. I know me personally, I know a lot more about the Great Lakes and the East Coast shipwrecks, that kind of stuff. But sometimes when you're reading through stories, one kind of grabs you. And that's that's kind of what this one did. It kind of grabbed a hold of me and I kind of thought we had to do a show about it. So with that being said, let's get started. Today's episode is about the SS Edmela. So she was built in Glasgow, Scotland in 1857, built by the Lawrence Hilk and Company. Admela stood for Adelaide, Melbourne, and Longston. So it's just they kind of mashed up those cities and that was the name. It's kind of a weird name. It definitely, usually they're named after a city or something like that, but they, they took three cities and threw it all together. She was 200 feet long, 26 feet wide, and drew about 14 feet of water. So not a huge ship by like modern standards, but uh, you know, 1857, that's... That's a fairly big vessel. She was actually somewhat unique for her time. She was constructed with three watertight bulkheads. They were considered a modern safety feature to kind of isolate flooding and help the ship stay afloat. But uh, as we always like to say on this podcast, this will be important later. So keep those bulkheads in mind. That's not good. (laughs) That's never a good thing when you say that. When you say this is going to be important later, we know that something, it's going to be important for a bad reason, I'm guessing. Exactly. (laughs) She ran a regular route between Melbourne and Adelaide. So just kind of back and forth, kind of just making stops in both places. I'm sure she probably stopped at intermediate spots. She was one of the fastest and most luxurious ships that sailed in the intercolonial trade. And these ships actually served a really important link. If you're familiar with Australia geography at all, you will uh, kind of realize it's a really big landmass with a whole bunch of nothing in the middle. So, you know, you weren't just jumping on your horse and riding across country. Uh, The only real route would have been via ship. So these coastal ships that kind of ran between the population centers were extremely important for trade, for commerce, and just to, you know, move people about. I'll just jump in here to say that another strike against this right away, like you just said, one of the fastest and most luxurious ships. You (laughs) you never want to be that. You never want to be the fastest. You never want to be the best in a situation like this, because that probably means you're going to It does seem to come back and haunt a lot of times. We'll call it the the curse of the fits, we'll call it. Um, the the vessel was captained by Hugh McEwen, which is an awesome name. Very uh, British Isles. Uh, he had previously completed 39 voyages on this route. And overall, he was considered to be an excellent captain. He was cautious and had a reputation for valuing safety, which is so far not really like any of the captains that we've talked about in our stories. So I would like to have him sit down for a conversation with Bad Weather Bob. <laughs> So let's get into the final voyage of the Edmela. Uh, she left Adelaide on August 5th, 1859, bound for Melbourne. Carried a passenger list that included 84 names, and she had 29 crew. In addition to the passengers, she also carried copper, flour, various general goods, and a few racehorses, which they made sure to specify was, in fact, something that they had. The most famous horse on board was a horse by the name of The Barber. And he was actually en route to Melbourne for a race. So it sounded like it was actually a fairly well-known horse uh, within like racing circles at the time. And yeah, a couple of the sources I read made sure to point out that there were racehorses on board the boat. Is it bad if I say, let's put another shrimp on the barber? (laughs) I don't know that our Australian listeners would find it funny. Uh, early into the voyage, the Edmela is experiencing increasingly heavy swells. So not necessarily storms, but very strong currents are pushing the boat and uh, kind of, you know, you're getting a lot of pitching, a lot of rolling. And as a result of this, the barber fell over in his stall. 
under uh, down in the cargo hold. So in order to correct this, the captain actually has to adjust course. So he kind of turns into the swells rather than having the ship rolling side to side, the ship's going into them. It helps them be able to get the horse back up on his feet and avoid injury. And after they make that adjustment, they switch back to their proper course or what they believe is the proper course. However, this course is more parallel to the coast and it actually puts them on a heading that is towards the Cape of Northumberland. I just want to interject here. I read through the notes. I read the story. And when it talks about this horse, the barber, when it talks about it falling over, that was mm-hmm. the o- that was the only time in this whole terrible story that I like said vocally out loud, oh, no. <laughs> Not the horse. <laughs> Not the horse. So on the morning of August 6th, around 4 in the morning, the Edmela strikes a reef off of Carpenter Rock. This is due to the slight navigational error that's taken place earlier the previous day. The ship ends up laid over on the reef and is basically stuck on the rocks, but also taking a direct pounding from the ocean. So there's just massive waves crashing onto the ship, driving it further onto the rocks. Obviously, the captain knows he needs to take action. He's in a bad place. He's also a man that's known for safety and caution. He doesn't hesitate. He orders the launch of lifeboats. They attempt to launch three different lifeboats. However, two of them are immediately smashed in the swells and a third one breaks loose from its tying to the ship and is swept away. So right away they realize, well, we've lost our lifeboats. We're in a bad spot and we're stuck on a reef. Mm -hmm. And then it gets worse. The heavy seas begin to push the Edmela further onto the reef. And this is absolutely ensuring that she's not going to be able to dislodge herself. As this is happening, there's more and more pressure building up between the waves and the rocks. The Edmela breaks into three pieces. This happens within about 15 minutes of it striking the rocks. So very quickly, the situation goes from extremely bad to far worse than anyone can imagine. This results immediately in several passengers being swept out to sea. And you can imagine in a torrent of, you know, water and strong pounding surf, that's not a survivable situation. This is and like yet, something from a from a movie, honestly. Like, it, it honestly is. And I mean, imagine like the floor just gives way beneath you and then boom, you're you're in the raging ocean. That's that's what's happening to some of these people. The crew attempts to fire distress rockets, however, they fail to properly deploy because of how, you know, everything's damp, everything's wet. You know, it just it doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. As the sun comes up, it's actually revealed that they're only about a thousand yards away from the coast. So you can imagine there's probably a little bit of uh, optimism at that point. You realize, hey, you know, we're not, you know, miles away from the coast. It's in theory a swimmable distance or, a you know, a rowable distance in a lifeboat. Mm-hmm. So as a plan is being discussed to reach the shore, it actually happens that they sight another ship. And that ship is actually the Edmela's sister ship, the Havila. Uh, she was sighted, but passed without noticing the stricken vessel on the rocks. I mean, as you can imagine, this is really before there's a lot of electrical lighting. This is before, you know, radar, obviously, any of that. It's not as easy as one would think to necessarily see that, especially with the Edmela being broken up into pieces and, you know, not presenting a normal ship profile. It would be very easy to note that, you know, you could sail past that and not notice it. Mm-hmm. It's also important to note that no one at this point knows that the accidents happened. No one's looking for a, a stricken ship on the rocks. There's none of the emergency broadcast methods available that we talked about with the Alfaro. You know, if you're not looking for something, you're probably not going to see it. So that takes us to August 7th. At that point, two able-bodied seamen from the Edmela are able to launch an improvised raft, and they're actually able to row to shore. They're able to cross that distance. They immediately set off for Cape Northumberland. Do we have any idea what this improvised raft is? 
Um, I wasn't really able to is, find it. Is, I'm is imagining there that says like what that's made of because I'm, I'm uh, very curious. I I don't know. I wasn't able to really define anything. I can imagine it involved lashing together some you know pieces of wood and I don't know doors that kind of like thing. I'm sure that if you're an experienced sailor, you probably have some ideas of what you can and can't use to create something like that. If you're in a survival situation, right. But yeah, I was also very curious. It's very interesting that it wasn't even a lifeboat. They were uh, able to kind of create their own. So upon arrival at the lighthouse, the keeper, Benjamin Germain, borrows a horse from a local named Donald Brown. And actually, Germain and Brown are able to ride about 10 miles to a telegraph station located at Mount Gambier. So at that point, you know, it's the middle 1800s. There are no telephones. There's nothing like that. Telegraph is really the only rapid communications method that's available. So once they are able to transmit the message, two ships are dispatched. The Lady Bird is dispatched from Portland and the Corio is sent from Adelaide to you know begin to aid in the rescue. Both ships actually had difficulty finding the stricken vessel due to poor conditions and visibility. Also a little bit of bad information. Again, you know, you're not in direct communication with anyone. It's a lot of relayed messages. It's a lot of it's a big game of telephone. So, you know, you might be getting information third, fourth, fifth hand, and you're the captain trying to find this stricken vessel. And at the same time, trying to avoid the reef yourself because you know you're sailing into a dangerous situation. So as all of that is going on, there's still drama on board the Edmela. Uh, The situation obviously is rapidly getting worse. Food's becoming scarce. The ship's been ripped apart. You know, you're not going to the galley and getting something to eat. You don't even know what food is left. Passengers had to be stopped from drinking seawater by the captain. Obviously, what do we know about seawater? It further dehydrates you. And it, you know, if you haven't drank water for two or three days, though, it probably looks pretty appealing. Yeah, I'm assuming that on a ship like this, because, you know, this is a, a pretty short run that it's it's going on. I'm, ass- I'm assuming it doesn't have a lot of stock on board in terms of rations. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. I mean, it's not a cruise ship, you know, it's yeah. not like they're, you know, some... It's luxurious. And when they use the word luxurious, keep in mind that it, it's luxurious for it's a day. It's not a carnival cruise where there's crab legs and shrimp and steak, you know, laid out for everybody. Mm-hmm. It's probably a lot of prepackaged and salted food. And if that gets swept off the boat, that's it. So obviously some of the people, you know, not some of the people, all of the people are beginning to weaken and get in worse and worse physical condition. And a lot of the reports are basically people would hold on as long as they could as the ship, you know, the ship's not sitting flat either. It's, it's at an angle. So you're always, you know, being forced to hold on to something or, you know, to grab something to, to study. And, you know, there's reports of people just giving up. You give up and you, you slip into the ocean where you're swept away. There was reports of shark attacks. Again, this is like something from a movie. This kind of has mm-hmm. it all. There's actually a quote from uh, the captain of a lifeboat that it was involved in the, the rescue operations. And the quote is, more like statues than human beings. Their eyes fixed, their lips black from want of water, and their limbs bleached white and swollen from exposure to the relentless surf. That's a pretty apocalyptic description of the situation. This is why I don't go on boats. I mean, if you can imagine finding people that have been, you know, just drenched in seawater for days and haven't eaten, they haven't drank, that would be a sight to see. Uh, I think it's something that would definitely stick with you. And it clearly did if he was able to give that vivid of a quote. So as they're holding on for survival, trying to survive, the ships that have been dispatched, the Ladybird and Corio, are en route to attempt rescue. Once they get on scene, they begin launching their lifeboats to, you know, see what they can do and see who they can save. Uh, another interesting tidbit in this is that at one point, one of Edmela's own lifeboats is used in a rescue attempt. So that lifeboat that had broken away when they attempt to launch it actually washes up on shore. 
And that same boat is actually rowed back out to the Edmela by uh, Benjamin Germain and used in his rescue attempt. This is such a strange and, and interesting, like cool detail of this story that, yeah, like that, that same lifeboat that got kind of swept away is it happens to wash up in a usable place and they, they take it and they, and they bring it back. So it does end up helping people off the boat or attempting to, but not quite in the way it was intended. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a weird detail. It's, there's a lot of details in the story that almost seem too good to be true. And there are a few that I'm skeptical of because it is an old story. Mm-hmm. But uh, the story has a very movie quality about it. And that brings me to Benjamin Germain's rescue attempts with that lifeboat. This takes place about a week after the ship first struck the rock or the reef. And that's just it. Like, there's not a lot to say in the intermediate. It's basically a story of survival. It is people. It's them trying to get to the boat. And it's people on the ship trying to survive. It's so crazy how close they are, too. Like, I Yeah, exactly. Can you imagine being able to look out and just see land and know that there's safety and you can't get to it? I was looking at, the, pic- at pictures of Carpenter Rocks, and yeah, it's, it's, it looks so incredibly close. And, and the idea that they're still not within safety just right. because of the conditions and the topography of the area. It's so, it's so crazy, and it's so, it's so sad, the idea that they're sitting there for a week while this is happening, and there's nothing that anyone can do. Right. And yeah, we'll definitely post some pictures of that on Instagram as well. Share some of those so you can get an idea of what that looks like. So let's talk about Benjamin Germain a little bit more. He's already been the hero of the story once, and he'll kind of continue to play that role. He takes the lifeboat that's washed up on shore, and this is about a week after the uh, the wreck first happens. He is actually able to rescue three people from the ship. The lifeboat does capsize at one point. There is a fourth person, and he is actually thrown into the water and ends up drowning. But he does rescue three people. Later, a lifeboat that's been towed to the scene by the Corio is able to come alongside the wreck, and they're actually able to rescue 19 people. So, you know, due to a combination of improved weather, of the the way that the current's flowing, they're actually finally able to kind of come alongside and get into a reasonable spot and rescue survivors. And honestly, this is probably about the last day that you could have. I can imagine that, you know, day eight of this, those survivors have to barely be clinging on to sanity or to life at that point. That has to be quite the experience. Yeah, a week a week with no drinking water is not a good uh, recipe for... Yeah, it's, it's very interesting, you know, that, you know, I'm sure that there was a lot of rationing going on, a lot of little tricks to try to catch, you know, what fresh water that you could. Um, it's definitely... Something that's interesting. It's definitely something that it shows you how mentally tough that some of these people were. Um, you have to imagine living in Australia in the mid 1800s. It's already a very tough life, even for someone who, if you live in a city. So just to be in this situation and have the mental fortitude and will to live, it's, uh, it's kind of like a movie like Alive or something like that, where it's kind of beyond the normal survival capabilities of people, I would say. So, I mean, that, that is the wreck. That is the, the story of what happened. So let's talk about uh, kind of the aftermath a little bit as the news kind of gets out about this. Telegraph offices are jammed with people. You know, people are lining up outside to try to hear what's going on throughout Australia. New special editions of newspapers are printed, recounting the tragedy, the tales of heroics by the rescuers. You know, it, be, it is a true national tragedy in Australia when it happens. And also a source of Australian pride. The captain and crew of the Ladybird are hailed as heroes for a lot of the work that they did. And then Benjamin Germain is also praised for his efforts to first alert authorities and then later risking his life to reach the wreck and try to rescue people. Parliament is adjourned. Business is closed throughout the colony. Like I said, it's it's a true national tragedy. And this is before mass communications. You know, there's no CNN putting this on the news, but it's still felt throughout the entire colony and still something that is a very tragic part of Australian history. One final note of aftermath is uh, the horse 
the barber that uh, originally necessitated the course change. He was swept out to sea as the uh, ship broke apart. However, he apparently survived the accident, swimming through the rough seas and reaching shore safely. I couldn't find any more information out about him after that. And I, I don't know. That story almost sounds too good to be true to me. But uh, yeah, apparently the horse that in some small way may have caused this accident <laughs> swam to shore and survived. It's very cinematic. Yes. Uh, I, it's, as with so many other parts of this story, it is very cinematic. Just imagining this this horse pulling itself out of the surf, shaking its mane, and then just kind of trotting away. It's so cinematic that I, I think I would also have to be a little bit skeptical of it. Is that exactly what happened? Yeah, it's, uh, so I, it's I don't know. It's a good story, though. Yeah, it is. It's a good little bit of a good story. You're right. So the final death toll, 24 of the 13 people on board survived. Only one woman survived, and uh, among the dead were 14 children. So, again, something that definitely struck a, a nerve in the Australian colony. Just a very tragic case of of an accident that proved fatal. So, 24, uh, 24 out of 113, we're looking at, what, a little under a quarter? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was definitely kind of probably the, the people that weren't killed initially when the boat, you know, broke apart and they were swept to sea, it kind of became a, a battle of attrition, I suppose, against the elements and starvation and dehydration. So the odds were not great. One final note is that in 1951, there was actually a different ship named the SS Corio that sank in almost the exact same location on what later became known as Edmela Reef. Actually, all aboard were rescued safely, but uh, it's just kind of a fun little bit of history that a ship with the same name as one of the ships that participated in the rescue actually sank in almost an identical position. Well, it's kind of funny it's how also, it works. It's also interesting to note the time difference, that this was still a problematic navigational hazard in 1951. Yeah, I didn't research into the like causes of the, the 1951 shipwreck. I don't know if it was a... You know, if there were extenuating circumstances or if it was also a navigational error. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it's definitely just a funny little coincidence that, mm-hmm. that a ship named the Corio would sink in the exact same place. That brings me to the end of the story part of uh, the show. That is the wreck of the Edmela, which I honestly had never heard about until about a week ago. I'm sure that it is more well known in Australia where it's still remembered. But uh, it was a good way for me to kind of expand my horizons and learn about something new and a topic that I really enjoy learning about. For me, this was fun because the extent of my knowledge of Australian history comes from the book The Fatal Shore by Robert Hughes. And hmm. there's, a, there's a lot more to it than that. So this was, this was a fun <laughs> uh, opportunity to, to learn a little bit more. So let's get into the discussion portion of the show. And let's ask that first question that we always ask. Why did the shipwreck happen? It's commonly held that the ship was pulled off course due to strong currents. Additionally, the ship may have been in a different position than what Captain McEwen thought due to the course changes that were made to right the horse. It would have been a small but fatal error for the ship. Basically, they sailed right into a hazard that they didn't expect to be there. You know, this is this is an accident that happens in the, the mid-1800s that probably doesn't happen or shouldn't happen in modern day, you know, shipping with GPS and, you know, current charts and maps. This incident is very much a product of its time. If that element of it is what happened, like you're changing the course to get to get this horse back on its feet, it's kind of an, an impressive devotion to the well-being of this racehorse. I would have to think that its owners probably had some money and were influential. Yeah, I mean, it yeah, it, it kind of says a lot, I think, about the value placed on this uh, within the culture. You know, this valuable racehorse, we got to make sure that this uh, that the barber is is doing okay. 
possibly at, yeah. the ex- at the expense of everyone else on the ship. All right, so the next discussion topic, what caused the vessel to break up so quickly? The commission that was held after the accident concluded that the three watertight bulkheads are responsible for the ship breaking into three sections. The insertion of these bulkheads resulted in hundreds of small holes from the bulkhead being riveted into place. This caused weak spots in the ship's hull, which almost immediately gave way when stressed in an unusual manner. So, you know, you have an idea like watertight bulkheads that are, it's touted as a safety feature. And it is a safety feature. You're able to isolate, you know, water coming in so you don't lose mm-hmm. buoyancy and flood the whole ship. However, when placed into a situation where they're not designed to operate, like, you know, being pushed up onto some rocks, that's exactly where the ship breaks into three parts. It's right along where those watertight bulkheads are mm-hmm. riveted into place. Watertight sounds good for a ship. I, I like the sound of that <laughs> for, for my, my sailing ship. Yeah, I mean, they definitely are. It's it's definitely a safety feature that is done with all the right intentions. However, when put into a string, a different situation than what they're designed for, it becomes the reason that this incident is probably so deadly. Obviously, mm-hmm. if the ship stays together, you have a better chance at rescuing more people. You're able to better ration supplies. Right. You're, you know, the captain is better able to manage the situation. So as soon as the ship breaks into three pieces, this this accident becomes more deadly. Another thing that we always like to talk about. What positives came out of this accident? You know, what can we learn from this? What things were done to to make shipping safer from this accident? First, the Cape Jaffa Lighthouse is constructed in 1872. It's originally built about eight kilometers out to sea. Since then, I think it has been moved kind of to shore. But uh, originally, you know, it's built out into kind of the reef areas. And it is constructed on the Margaret Brock Reef is the actual location where it is or where it was. So... Keep in mind, this lighthouse is built in 1872, so it's not like the shipwreck happens and they immediately put the lighthouse up. But it is something that is, you know, this wreck is used to justify why that lighthouse and that navigational aid would be important. Mm -hmm. Another feature or another thing that is added is that a telegraph is installed at the Northumberland Lighthouse. Obviously, if that had happened sooner... Then when the crew members come to the shore and they're able to meet uh, Benjamin Germain, he would have been able to send that distress signal himself rather than mm-hmm. the additional 10 mile ride. You know, that's saving hours of time and every minute matters in a situation like this. So surely if you could have saved a few hours, you know, you could have, you know, someone may not have starved. Someone may not have died of dehydration. So mm-hmm. obviously you want to have all of the tools at your disposal at a life saving station. And I mean, you have to remember that telegraph is still a new technology. But it's definitely something this accident pushed was that, you know, life-saving stations need to have telegraphs so they can communicate, you know, life-saving information. All right. And just some of my concluding thoughts on the Edmela and the, the story overall. And then I know you've got a few things you want to say as well. I'll go ahead and do mine. The Wreck of the Edmela is a classical, tragic shipwreck story. It has all of the elements of a Hollywood movie. Sadly, for those on board, it was all too real. This accident took place in a time where tragic accidents were all too common. However, it's clear that the wreck of the Edmela was exceptionally tragic, even in this environment. Perhaps this is due to the seemingly randomness of the accident. No real explanation except for a small navigational error and the currents of the ocean. Maybe it's due to the vulnerability that surely must have been felt by those who heard about the story through telegraph offices or kept up to date in the newspaper headlines. Surely it must have been unnerving to know that this common mode of transportation could end with you clinging to the slippery remains of a ship, malnourished and dehydrated, trying to avoid shark-infested waters. Yeah, I think that at the end of the day, that's what it is for me. This was an everyday common trip. There's nothing unique about what happened here. And it had to be a scary thing, knowing that you were dependent upon this mode of transportation for your safety. And that's how the story could end for you. 
So yeah, that, that's kind of what I, that, that's my thoughts on it from the, the the purely the shipwreck side of it. What do you uh, what are your thoughts kind of on the literary side of things? I was really interested in this because as I was reading about it and realizing that this is a big piece of cultural memory for Australia, it, it has a big presence in literature, or it has a presence. I I don't know that I could say it's a big presence. It's definitely there. Even you know clo- closer to the time of the accident, you have poems like "The Ride from the Wreck" by Adam Lindsay Gordon. I'm um, actually Ben Germain himself is a bit of a kind of a celebrated figure from that time. You know, when he when he died in 1893, after a long career of you know working lighthouses and captaining ships, he was remembered in the South Australia Register, kind of a poem in memoriam. I'd like to actually read a few stanzas of that if we have the time for it. Yeah, definitely. Let's definitely do that. Yeah, so I'm going to jump to the end of the the sum. So this is, a again, a, a poem that appeared on uh, September 23rd, 1893 in the South Australia Register. You knew every cape on the blue, Ben, of our South Australian seas, every island and nook, and could tell like a book the course and the distance with ease. The shoal without beacons or buoys, Ben, you knew to an inch how to clear. But haply at port, your restlessness passed on the jasper-hued waters you steered. There's no club or hawks hauling there, Ben, no easing the sheets in a jump. No starboard nor port, no wind slants to court, nor meeting the yaws in a lump. There's no humbug reach in the course, Ben, no watching the tides or the vein. No luff point or shoals to trouble the souls of the pilots up there, Ben Germain. Um, So he was remembered as someone who was very good at what he did. Uh, as we talked about earlier, you know, this guy was remembered not just because of the Admela, but for other shipwrecks also, uh, where he was instrumental in saving the lives that could be saved in the story that we just talked about. Without Ben Germain, maybe no one survives. So yeah, I, th- I think just his presence in the as kind of a cultural figure was very interesting to me, because obviously someone I had not heard of before we talked about this story. So there's that. You've got these poems. There's actually a a novel called From the Wreck by the author Jane Rawson, uh, mm-hmm. not specifically about Ben Germain, but it does discuss the, the wreck of the Admela. I'm looking forward to reading that. I think my copy should arrive today. Interesting. Um, yeah, I saw that the, I saw that referenced a few places, and it sounded like it was a very interesting story, kind of mm-hmm. had some sci-fi even, stuff going on. E- even what's interesting to me is that in March of 1944, the newspaper The Portland Guardian ran a short little article about a memorial to Ben Germain. So even at this point, you know, in, in Australia's history, where this is smack in the middle of World War II, they're still thinking about this person as as someone who needs to be remembered because of what he did to to save people uh, in this area of the country. Yeah, I think that's interesting that the article runs in uh, the middle of World War II. I haven't read it, obviously, but I can imagine it was very much an appeal to uh, everyone to be like a Ben Germain and, you know, the, the kind of that hard, rugged Australian values of, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, times might be tough, but look what he did and you can do it too. I can imagine that's probably how he was uh, remembered in that case. Yeah, there's definitely, there's talk, you know, of a, a small band of heroes, these, these heroic, these gallant attempts uh, to, to basically do their job against the odds. So it definitely falls in line with what you were just talking about. The other thing that I thought about when I first read this story the first thing that really jumped into my mind, actually, was a, a story by Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury has a short story in The Illustrated Man. It's called Kaleidoscope. Mm-hmm. And obviously, the, the situation in the story is very different. Kaleidoscope is about a rocket full of astronauts that explodes. 
and it sends you know each astronaut sort of off in a different direction. They're floating through space and they're slowly drifting apart from each other. They can still talk to each other, still see each other as they're as they're drifting apart, but there's no way at all that they could possibly survive this. There's no way to save each other. There's no way out of this situation, but they can still communicate. They can still see each other. As they drift apart, they start to wonder, what is this all for? What what can we even talk about now? Now that nothing mm-hmm. matters, what are we even going to say to each other, even though we can? Just kind of the proximity to shore kind of reminded me of that, the idea that you're close to safety, but you can't get there. There's nothing you can do about it. That Ray Bradbury story ends, spoiler alert, uh, with the main character, astronaut, kind of wondering what what can I do with the rest of my life, whether it's you know minutes or hours or whatever. And then eventually a young boy on Earth sees him as a shooting star as he's burning up in the atmosphere. And he, he makes a wish on that shooting star. It's kind of a beautiful moment taken out of a tragedy. And I guess we could kind of extrapolate that out to, to this, where we have these tales of heroism and we have these, like we talked about, what changes come from this? We always want to look at what resulted from this tragedy, from this accident. And we, like you mentioned, uh, building this lighthouse because this is a, clearly a, a dangerous area. And we have characters like Ben Germain who come out of these stories where you have a tragedy and then you you try to look for the helpers. You look for the people who are doing something in the situation to make it on, on top of the tragic nature of it, but also to make it a tale of human perseverance and heroism. So all right. of that kind of came together in my head. And I was thinking, this is this is just a great story. This is a story that should be told more. This should be this should be more widely known. Absolutely. And it definitely, um, I think we've touched on it a few times. It fits that mold of what is a, a classic shipwreck story, like, uh, the romantically tragic stories that are, you know, part of human history and everything. And this one definitely checks that box. Every, you know, every country, every region of the United States has a story like this one that you can tell. Mm-hmm. But it, you know, it becomes part of the cultural identity of that area. You do have, like you said, figures like Ben Germain that become part of the cultural identity. And as someone that has remembered, you know, almost 100 years later in another time of, of national need during World War II, it's interesting. I think that's what I find interesting about these stories. It's interesting when you can draw literary parallels to something like a work by Ray Bradbury. And yeah, I think that's why I want to continue to do this podcast. I want to keep telling these stories and, and bringing these stories to someone that may not have heard them. Because a week ago, I didn't know this story. And uh, now I, you know, I'm captivated by it. I want to learn more about that region. I want to learn more about this story and, you know, kind of keep going. One final thing that I want to start doing on the show, I think we're going to always kind of have a little bit of a recommended reading. may not necessarily be a shipwreck story, but it will be something kind of that we've discussed. And in this case, I would definitely say that the Ray Bradbury story Kaleidoscope would be this week's recommended reading. We'll definitely put that in the show notes. And I think going forward, that's something we'll do is we'll always try to have some little piece of, um, you know, literary media to, to consume. It might be a short story. It might be a poem. It may be a novel, uh, depending on what it is that week. But it's definitely something that uh, I'd like to start doing. This is to give, uh, give a little bit of more outside of the show uh, so we can keep looking at the literary stuff, too. Maybe it's a video of me doing an interpretive dance. <laughs> we'll stick to the books. <laughs> um, but with, yeah, with that being said, uh, we definitely appreciate everybody listening. We appreciate the support that we're getting on social media, through email, and through the ratings on iTunes. Please keep doing that. We definitely appreciate it. And we will be back next week with another story. Thanks for listening, everybody.